Well, good evening and uh, welcome to this study through the book of Acts. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at uh, Acts 6, 1 through 7, and how God sets the church, this family of faith, up to serve. Uh, immediately on the heels of, of uh, the church and the Word multiplying and growing uh, in Jerusalem and even stretching beyond that, we hear the story of a martyr, uh, beginning in verse uh, 8. Uh, all the way to the end of chapter 7, uh, we hear uh, the story of Stephen. You know, a martyr is someone who gives his life uh, for a cause. And the question is, would you give your life, would you literally die for something you only partially believed in? Um, and the answer is, of course not. You die for that which is your life. Uh, and uh, Stephen uh, falls in line with a storied history of men and women in the Bible who give their lives for the glory of God, uh, for Him. Uh, they uh, passionately pursue God's glory, and they give themselves wholeheartedly for uh, the mission that God had given them. And we see this. Uh, preeminently in Jesus. And uh, most scholars recognize the comparisons between the crucifixion of Jesus and the death of Stephen. There, there are beautiful similarities there, even to the end when Stephen is dying and, and he asks God not to hold um, the sin of the executors against them. Uh, similar to what Jesus did when he's being killed on a cross, he said, Father, don't don't hold this sin against those who are killing me. It, it, it's that kind of similarity that uh, leads us to understand that for the church, um, we are a family, and this family, we give our lives for the glory of God, just as Jesus did. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus, just as Stephen did, and we give ourselves to be a martyr. Uh, the church fulfills her calling when we give our lives for Jesus. And, and uh, martyrdom is not something that is non-existent. In fact, in my, book, in my hand, I have a devotion guide uh, that's called When Faith is Forbidden. It's published by uh, Moody Press out of Chicago, but it's uh, uh, sponsored by the Voice of the Mar Martyrs. And if you have never heard of the voice of the martyrs, I encourage you to look them up online and, and follow them. Uh, but I want you to hear the story of Mr. G. Uh, and I'm just going to read this. Uh, Mr. G came to us at night. He lived in China. Uh, it would have been too dangerous for him if we had gone to him. He was a soft-spoken uh, and calm person. My quick impression was that this was not a man who would get rattled ever. As he told his story, I came to understand why persecution, it seems, runs in his family. His grandfather was a house church pastor and a missionary to other parts of China after the communist takeover in 1949. Eventually, Grandpa Xi spent more than 10 years in prison. Mr. Xi was quick to make sure we understood that his grandfather's time in prison was actually short. Many church leaders of that era spent more than two decades in prison. Mr. Xi's father, 
was a deacon in the church. He also was detained by police on many occasions. My new friend told me that when he was a child, there were very few cars where they lived. So the few times they saw, saw a car running down the street, it usually meant authorities were coming to arrest his father. Mr. Xi said when they saw a car coming, his father would calmly ask his mother to collect some extra clothes for him to take with him in, his, in case his quote-unquote visit to the police station turned into days or weeks in prison. Growing up in such a home, it's no surprise that Mr. Xi is also involved in gospel work. Because of his front row understanding of the costs of ministering for Christ in China, Mr. Xi wasn't surprised or deterred when he was asked to pay a price as well. In fact, he sees benefits in persecution. Persecution is like fire, he told me. I use the word like purify. If we want pure gold, we have to let it go through the fire. He said that Christianity had become cool among Chinese people who thought of it as a Western religion and thought all parts of Western culture were popular. He said, the blessing of persecution for the church is that when we are facing the difficulties, the serious believers will stay. So it doesn't matter what happens. Persecution leaves the church full of believers serious about their faith. Serious enough that threats of arrest or physical pain can't keep them from meeting. Those who are there only because it's cool quickly fall away. Churches full of pure, refined fire tend to be unstoppable, and Mr. Xi was one of those believers. Following his family's footsteps, he's been detained by police on many occasions and several times served 15 days of administrative detention. I asked him about the first time he was arrested, and the first word he used was privilege. He said, I'm finally like my grandfather. The interesting thing is five years of his prison time was in uh, a certain province, and what happened to me was in that same province and very close to where my grandfather was imprisoned. I felt like I am so privileged in my family. Many years ago, my grandfather was here and suffered for the Lord, and today I am here. I just felt a privilege, and also my father was so very happy. He said, his father said, many years ago, I came here to pick up your grandfather. Today, I am picking you up from the same province, very close to each other. He was like, Lord, thank you. Lord, I thank you. It took me a minute to process what Mr. G had just said, how many American parents, including me, would be, would be thankful our children were arrested and spent time in jail. But Mr. G explained further. He said, I think Christianity is really a relationship and God is real and we have this relationship with him. It's not just by saying, okay, God, we trust you. We trust him and know the great commission that he has given us. So we are so honored to be his servants. I don't see any reason we shouldn't be happy. This is really a great blessing. This being persecution is really a great blessing from him. By the way, you can save people. There are people in prison. They are really hopeless people and they're facing death sentence and they will be leaving this world soon. You have the chance to share the gospel with them and save their souls from death. What a blessing 
The first time I really experienced the miracle happening in that beautiful time. From Xi's very first prison sent, uh, visit, he has kept this attitude. And today he knows his Bible distribution work would send him back to prison for three years or more. It's an outcome he's not losing any sleep over. He said, I mean, persecution and suffering, you can't really hide from it. If you're a real Christian, you will be persecuted. It doesn't matter. You'll be persecuted if you want to be a godly person. We all know that uh, we all know if we choose to work for the Lord sometime, maybe not now, you will be persecuted for sure. The writer goes on, we finished our conversation and said our goodbyes, and Mr. Xi departed. His retreating figure merged quickly into the darkness, going back to his family and his ministry work, and quite possibly, I know, to further arrests, imprisonment, and persecution. As I watched him go, I wished that thinking about future hardship left me as unfazed as it does this bold brother in the Lord. When we think about persecution, we need to hear the story of Mr. G. When we read about the persecution of Stephen, we need to think about our own commitment to give our life for the calling which God has given us. As we look at the story of Stephen, as we remember the story of Mr. G, I want us to remember that God's power works through his church to do wondrous things. In verses 8 through 15, uh, we see that Stephen's on mission in Jerusalem, and it led him into a, a, a Jewish gathering of freedmen where he gets into a conversation. Stephen apparently shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, and it became a, a, sore, a sore point for some of those who had gathered together in the synagogue. They sought to unravel the claims of Christ um, that Stephen presented. Look at verses uh, 8 through 10. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose from what is called the synagogue of freedmen, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Uh, we need to understand that God calls us to fulfill our calling. Our calling is to tell others who Jesus is, but God also equips us to fulfill his calling. Uh, Stephen was filled uh, with faith or grace and power. God was empowering, equipping Stephen to present the gospel. He was filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. And when we are filled with the Spirit and with wisdom, God makes the message of the gospel irresistible through us. God has called us not to compromise the message of Christ, but to proclaim it ever boldly, even in the face of persecution. Stephen shared the gospel with wisdom. That means that, that he was well thought out. It means that he was intentional. It means that he was directed by the Spirit of God in the words that he would say. Uh, Stephen's wisdom and the manner in which he shared only bolstered his witness to the claims of the gospel of Christ. 
And even though some tried to dismantle those claims, they were unable to. Friends, we need to understand as the church, we are messengers of God's fame. We are messengers of Jesus Christ. We're not peddlers for our own popularity. We're not protectors of our personal position. We are messengers reflecting the character of Jesus Christ in the midst of the most trying trench living. Stephen was standing before his accusers, maligned with false accusations, but he did not shrink, nor did he embrace something less than the demands of God's holiness. He found opportunity to advance the mission as God's messenger, even in the face of opposition. In verse 15, uh, it says that, that when those who opposed Stephen saw his face, they saw the face of an angel. Now, when we are filled with grace and power of the living God, when we're walking led by the Spirit of God, when we speak boldly the good news that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ, then our countenance will reflect God's character. Oh, that we, the church, would stop mamby-pambying around in this world and stand boldly and courageously and proclaim with, with grace and wisdom the good news of God's rescuing love and whatever may come, we take it as Jesus did. Oh, that we would be a martyr, a witness for Jesus. When we share the good news of God's rescuing love, God does wondrous and mighty things. The second thing that we see is God's glory demands that we proclaim the gospel. Now, in verses 1 through 53 of chapter 7, we see Stephen telling the big story, the big story of the gospel. He goes all the way back to Abraham through Joseph and Moses and to the temple, and he shows how each one of those epochs in Old Testament history uh, of the big story that God has painted lead directly to Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, Stephen told the big story, and, and he invited those hearers into God's big story. This is the story of God's wondrous work in bringing rescue to those who are perishing in their sin. He begins with Abraham in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 7. He had focused all his attention on God's glory, and he showed how Abraham played an integral part in the big story of God's rescue mission. Throughout this first section of Stephen's sermon, the theme isn't Abraham, it's God's glory, it's God's mission, it's God's purpose. God revealed himself to Abraham so that the plan for salvation would begin to unfold. Now, this appearing didn't happen in a sacred space. God didn't show up to Abraham in a, in a sanctuary like this one in which we gather for worship. No, it, it happened in the seedbed of idolatry in Mesopotamia. God sent Abraham out of Mesopotamia to Haran on a mission. He sent Abraham out of his past and into his future, a future designed to bring the hope of intimacy between the people of the land and the God of glory. The God of glory has appeared to us here today in our sin-saturated, idol-soaked land. 
And he commands us, his family, called First Norfolk, he commands us to fulfill our calling and tell people about this big story that finds its ultimate expression in the person of Jesus Christ. And God has made the church and moves the church forward on a mission out of our past and into our future to tell the people of the land the good news that they can be rescued by God's grace. And he moves from Abraham, and then he begins to tell the story of Joseph. When we think of the story of Joseph, we think of the story of like Jack and the beanstalk. Y'all know Jack was a fatherless and only child to his mother, and they were poor as dirt, and he was trying to, uh, trying to find a way to make life happen, and, and he bought, instead of uh, uh, food for the table, he bought a a bag of magic beans, and his mother was so upset, but finally um, the magic beans led to a beanstalk up to a magic castle and a, a goose that laid golden eggs and all that kind of stuff. And, and Jack climbed the beanstalk and uh, outwitted a giant and got the gold, and, and, and everybody was rescued. I love stories like that. That's why I watch Hallmark movies. But when we look at the story of Joseph, as, St as Stephen told it, uh, Joseph's story uh, was bigger than any kind of myth, and, 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 and his story was part of God's big plan of rescue for a lost world. Beginning with Abraham, Stephen traced the narrative of God's rescuing plan uh, through Joseph. And Joseph's history is primetime drama. Uh, Joseph, uh, one of 11 brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers in prison, in Potiphar, uh, a, a slave in Potiphar's house, then thrown in prison, eventually becomes the prince of Egypt, a man of great influence. And Joseph's joy, however, was not in his wealth. His joy was in fulfilling God's purpose. He saw the tough inter intersections that he experienced as part of God's rescuing plan. Stephen told the story of Abraham, and he told the story of Joseph in verses 17 through 43. He tells the story of Moses. Stephen takes great pains to show how, uh, how God moved Moses toward the promise of Jesus. The gospel that we proclaim is not a small thing. It's, it's uh, the defining story of all of human history. The significance of Stephen's phrase in chapter 7, verse 17, the time of promise must not be missed. We are living in the time of promise. The events of life and history were shaped by God for the fulfillment of His desire and design for humanity's rescue from their plight and problem of sin. Uh, so often we try to define our life by the characteristics and circumstances surrounding it. Uh, I've had a good day or I've had a bad day. Um, I, I have a good job or I have a bad job. I, 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 I drive a nice car or I, I drive a clunker. We, we define our life by the characteristics and circumstances that surround it. It's like trying to define a speck of sand on the coastline by the unique color, shape, and texture. It just doesn't work. And although God can and does evaluate these specks of our lives, noting our uniqueness, our uniqueness is not, in, is not the significant defining factor of our lives. Uh, 
The definition of our lives and our church is found in the will of a loving God moving us toward the promise that he has given. The time of promise of the promise's fulfillment was drawing near, so God raised up Moses. And the first thing that we see about Moses is that he was beautiful in the sight of God. God looked upon Moses and smiled. He saw in Moses the one who had pressed the promise toward fulfillment. The beauty of the church is our persistent uh, uh, pursuit of the mission's fulfillment. Moses all, uh, saw the coming of the promise and the coming of the prophet who was named Jesus. And Moses moved forward toward that promise and toward the fulfillment of, of, of God's purpose. And he led others toward that promise as he went. The children of Israel out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, through the, uh, 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 through the wilderness, wanderings, now following after uh, God each day. Moses was the prophet pointing to the supreme prophet, Jesus. Stephen told the story of Abraham and told the story of of, uh, Joseph, told the story of Moses. And, and, And he's not just telling Old Testament history, he's pointing toward the time of the promises fulfillment in Jesus Christ, which leads him to the temple in verses 44 through 50. Um. The temple was the big distraction for the Jerusalem uh, uh, haters of Stephen in that moment. The temple was the big deal. Um, and, and we need to understand for our family of faith, there are distractions uh, that, that move us away from the big picture. The temple was part of God's story, but it wasn't the center of God's story. It was only pointing toward the, big, uh, the center of God's story. Uh, my amazement is always renewed many, uh, in, in the ways in which we, the church, even our first Norfolk family, can get distracted from the big story that God has given us. Uh, not long ago, well now probably two decades ago, it is a long time ago, I heard uh, of a church uh, where the organist resigned because Easter had come and gone and the organ did not have the prominent place she thought it deserved. She declared that the, quote, organ was disrespected. And guys, I got to tell you, that's a church that's distracted. That's a person that's distracted. Distracted from the big story. The big story never centers around a stage or a sermon or a song or an instrument. The big story is centered on Jesus. For the Jews to whom Stephen was preaching, uh, it was the temple that was the distraction. They had developed the the idea that God was a local deity confined to the walls of a temple. So Stephen focused on God's glory, not the glory of the temple. When a church elevates an object, whether it's a building or something else, to a place reserved for God alone, then the church is guilty of idolatry. And perhaps that's what uh, Stephen was hinting at. Uh, The temple didn't even come into existence until 430 years after God's promise to Abraham. Uh, uh, Stephen wanted the people to hear that the focus of God's promise was not a temple, but it was a person, the Messiah. Uh, He even began to talk about the tabernacle as a foil against 
the temple, you know, the tabernacle, that was the tent of meeting above which stood God's presence in the wilderness wanderings. God was constantly in the midst of his people there at the tabernacle uh, doing mighty and wondrous works. And the tabernacle was a constant reminder that God was with them and for them and moving toward a promise. And in, in, in the same way, we see that Jesus came to renew that tabernacle mentality to us. Jesus is God, tabernacled among us. Um, and, and, and today, as the Spirit of God indwells our, our, our every single believer and indwells this body of believers called the church, we are the tabernacle of God, not confined by bricks and mortar, but on mission for Him to carry the good news of His rescuing love to all that we might encounter. It, 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 is, this, it is this beautiful story beginning with creation and moving through the temple to the person of Jesus Christ that led Stephen to preach the gospel, which led him to a confrontation uh, with his hearers. You know, confrontation is never fun, whether you're on the giving end of it or the receiving end of it. It's, it's never a fun thing to experience or uh, to, uh, to give. But, but Stephen talked about uh, how that the children of Israel and those in the midst of his sermon even then were, were guilty of the death of the promise that God had made. In the sweep of culture today, churches have lost sight of that mandate to confront, surfing the waves of niceties and cliched uh, acceptance and mushy truth. These churches have abandoned a call uh, for decision about Jesus Christ. Instead of confronting individuals with the verdict demanded by our sin, we try, we try to self-help them into a better life. Our sin, however, brings us under a verdict, a judgment. Uh, in verse 51, Stephen said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels, uh, and yet have not kept it? Uh, they, uh, they were confronted with their sin. They had resisted God's Spirit. They had killed the prophets, and they were lawbreakers. When we, the church, fulfill our calling, when we give our lives to Jesus, we are going to confront others with the gospel and with the verdict. Our sin separates us from God. No good feeling can erase that separation. Our sin separates us from God, and there is no amount of good works that can bridge that separation. Our sin separates us from a holy God, and we are headed for judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, has given us Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for our sin, was raised from the dead uh, to give us new life. And through faith in Him and in Him alone can you be saved. And there's no other name under heaven by which any of us can be saved except the name of Jesus. When we confront our neighbors and the nations with this truth, some will receive it, but some will reject it. And we might even lose our lives over it. 
Yes, God does wondrous things through the church that's faithful to Him. And yes, uh, a church that's faithful to Him will share the gospel regardless of the opposition. But finally, number three, a lifestyle of a martyr faces persecution. A martyr, uh, by its definition, is a witness. A witness for Jesus. By the way, that's our calling, isn't it? The church is called to be a community of martyrs. Each one of us giving ourselves wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. But that will many times mean persecution. I want you to hear the persecution that Stephen faced. So often we like the persecution, the hero of our story, to win in the end. And Stephen did win in the end, but it didn't have a hallmark-like ending. Uh, Look at verses 54 through 60. When they heard these things, that's the people to whom Stephen was preaching. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they ran out with him with... uh, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Friends, today... um, We love the story of of the advance and the growth of the church. We love that story. Um, But if we're going to be the people of God, the family of faith that God's called us to be, then we must give our all for Jesus our whole life. We must be martyrs for Him. And when we are martyrs for Him... In life and in death, when we are martyrs for Him, even in the face of opposition, persecution, or crucifixion, when we're martyrs for Him, then we see His glory. We see the win, the victory. The victory is God's glory. The reward is Jesus Christ. The victory for you and for me, for this church is to be faithful in good times and bad, when it's easy and when it's not, when people applaud or when people throw stones. Church, let's be martyrs for our King. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May he bless your coming in and your going out. And may he fill your life with courage and purpose. God bless you and good night.